I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, my name is Michelle Luke, and you're listening to episode 12 of the Thump Podcast. Every week, we bring together a panel of experts to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary electronic music and nightlife. Today, we'll be doing a two-part special about the state of gay nightlife in America, featuring six DJs and promoters from today's top party crews, all of whom are here in New York this month for RBMA's trade show. In part one, we'll be talking to Men's Room, Hanjo, and The Needle Exchange about the intersections of politics and partying, sexuality and safe spaces, as well as race and inclusivity. In part two, we'll be talking to Wrecked, the Carrie Nation, and Honey Sound System about underground versus mainstream gay culture, the musical connections between their parties, and most importantly, why gay men love poppers. So I'd like to welcome the first group of DJs to the podcast. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? How's it going, everybody? My name is Baron Hawk Portier. I'm representing the Needle Exchange. Uh, and for short, we go by TNX. We're from Washington, D.C. Or TN Ecstasy. <laughs> or TN Ecstasy. <laughs> hey, what's going on? My name is ACE, the Ace Boom Bap. I'm representing Men's Room, Chi Town, Chicago. Uh, this is Aaron Clark. I'm from Pittsburgh and I'm representing the Honcho Crew. I want to start by talking about politics, which is obviously a really hot topic right now. How does your city's particular political climate affect the way that you throw your party and, you know, the gay scene especially? D.C. luckily has always been a a left-leaning city, and we continue that tradition of being an open party. We haven't had a need to throw a protest party or anything like that because we naturally subscribe to that with the people that come to our parties. I saw an amazing video recently, though, of a queer protest outside of Ivanka Trump's house in Washington, D.C. There are definitely organizations that <laughs> will take it to the streets and will take it to where these politicians live and wherever else, and they'll they'll bring a demonstration to them. And that's definitely one of the things that you'll find in D.C. since there's a lot of nonprofits and a lot of organizations that are able to do that and will take politics you know, more into their forefront. I mean, they were twerking in her backyard. It was fab. That's what she gets. (laughs) You know, Chicago being in the very dead center of the country, one of the main things I think the city faces is a real issue of segregation still to this day. The north side tends to be very white. The south side is black, west side black and Latin consciously knowing that from day one going into the party, we actively 
I worked the door of, the, of my own party at the beginning to sort of curate a crowd that did reflect a little bit more of like the entire city and what was going on at the time. Right, because even in Boys Town, for example, which is the gay neighborhood in Chicago, I've heard criticisms that it's very much for white men. You know, definitely, I think the way that gentrification sort of works and the way that economic systems are set up, Boys Town did become that. Men's Room did start in Boys Town, sort of on the edge, on the outskirts of it, basically one block over from the main strip. So even that us being like just a little askewed off of the main road sort of allowed us to develop our own rules to the game. Mm. How does the city's infrastructure affect the way that, um, you know, the gay scene or the nightlife scene is segregated? Accessibility, I I think the main issue there is how are you going to get to that function? Is it 45 minutes, an hour, is an hour and a half for you to get there? Are you traveling through neighborhoods that are safer, that are unsafe, you know what I mean? It's, it's definitely built on the accessibility. Mm. And with Men's Room, we did start off in the Boys Town neighborhood to provide that sort of alternative to what was happening, which was a little bit more bland and whitewashed at the time. And we were able to move around the city. And we took it a little bit further south to what was a historical gay neighborhood from the 70s. And like in our second and third year, we were in Old Town. And definitely when we moved there, you were able to see new people coming to the party and because of that accessibility. Mm. And how do you think that today's political climate has affected Honcho and Pittsburgh's scene? We're kind of lucky as far as the party goes in a way that the city's politics, you know, Western Pennsylvania is, in, is basically Trumpville, but Pittsburgh, the actual city limits are very small. And it's it's really an island of left activism. There's a lot of queer groups that get really involved. There's a lot of protests going on. Uh, when the women's march was going on, there was more than one march happening across the city to in different parts of town to make sure that everyone was a part of it in some way. The party, though, what makes Honcho Honcho is that we have always been built inside of the bathhouse. And it's the only operating bathhouse in Pittsburgh. And it's right in the middle of downtown, which is sort of a neutral ground for the city. It's where all the bus lines run into each other. No one really lives around there. So we are kind of buddying up with a long gay institution in the city. By teaming up, we've really like helped each other. Mm. I've heard people say, you know, as queers, as minorities, with Trump in power, that everything we do now is a form of resistance. Do you guys agree with that? It sort of was like that before already. You know, I think now uh, people are just sort of wearing their political ideals and beliefs and wearing their hatred just a little more loudly. But especially all of our parties, we started before the Trump climate. Mm -hmm. And we were already at that time knowing that this was providing a space that was allowing the mindset to escape a little bit from the realities of the social injustice that's happening now. Yeah. I remember we had Honcho like a couple days after the election, and I really wondered what it was going to do to the vibe of the event. And I think that actually... It was the first time that the whole club kind of collectively emerged from their, like, locking themselves in their house and, like, feeling really, I don't know about all of you guys, but I, it was like, you didn't want to talk to anybody. You didn't leave your house. It was so sad. (laughs) And, 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 and I, and I worried that would kind of happen again with the party, but people 
I think took it as a chance to unleash and like let that out and kind of be with family, which kind of drove home that, yeah, this is actually really important. You shouldn't let this stop this. Right. And it's not just Trump. It's, you know, Pulse Orlando. It's Oakland. I mean, I feel like the rave scene has been really going through a lot of shit recently. And at least here in New York, I think, you know, partying has taken on greater significance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like people are are adding more purpose uh, to their nightlife. And and Mm -hmm. even when they're going out, you can feel a a different energy, Uh, still a friendly and, and loving energy, but you can still tell that people are, are listening and, and paying attention and, and being more aware of their surroundings and not really taking these things for granted because these spaces are difficult to put on. And I think people are really starting to realize that. How do you think that gay nightlife has changed in America in the last, let's say, two or three years? I would say that it feels like we have entered the next wave of this where we all started as an island in our own cities doing something for our cities and then slowly it connected into this larger web, which is this party is one part of that web. It keeps growing and there's a lot of kids now that might have been great music lovers, but they didn't really connect it to the club until they dove into our parties and now you see them starting their own events and like getting into production a little bit here and there or like sitting down in an OG's studio and like, you know, 45 year old man teaching this little 22 year old how Mm. analog hardware works. And it's really, that's like where I see it's spreading. Mm, That's, that's what I've noticed. Noticed a a lot more people taking bigger risks Mm -hmm. with their parties. Um, Because I remember two, three years ago, we were doing needle exchange every Sunday and it was just sort of like a, a, a meetup between the three of us, Bill, Tommy, and I. And then we wanted to change from doing a weekly party to a monthly event, book bigger artists, start to travel more and take it more on the road and really turn this into something larger. And then we started to meet all these other groups that were doing the exact same thing and were also taking more risks with their parties. Uh, and I've, that's, that's definitely what I've noticed. There's an awareness that happened within the last two to three years and connectivity with these parties. All of these parties started probably within five to six years ago. I know for men's room personally in Chicago, a big part uh, when the party first started was sort of a rejection of technology in the way where a lot of queer people have been using apps and websites to connect with other queer people, whether that is to hook up for sex or to hang out. And at the time, you know, We were trying to create spaces where you actually could once again just have this interaction in person. And that definitely has spread. You can tell as these parties continue, people are really letting go. The number of people that are coming to parties now and then that are actually not on their phones, they're in the function, they're in the party. And maybe, you know, maybe that is a political climate, too. People need it right now. They need to drop that ecstasy and just dance. And I mean, you can definitely feel it. I'm really hopeful and I'm glad the the state of queer nightlife in America now as compared to two or three years ago, it's still, it was sizzling. Now it's boiling. But before there was sort of a death, a death in the scene for a while, early 2000s, late 90s, coming off of the AIDS crisis, sort of like going into new generations of young queer people. But now, in today's state, I think, like, the kids are ready to tear it out. 
Right. So, okay, I want to talk about the AIDS crisis and its impact on on gay nightlife because, like you said, it had like a huge, devastating impact. And are you saying that its effects lasted past the AIDS crisis through the 90s and 2000s? Absolutely. Yeah, there was a fear that developed. You didn't just have a fear of sex, but the fear of intimacy, the fear of gathering again. I mean, you're talking about generations of people that lost the entire club, Mm. you know, two months, three months. The early medication was taking people in two months. Mm. So that effect lasted a very long time. And I think all of the parties now, this is sort of that first wave of reclaiming that space again where you can come to sort of be free and you can come to experience sort of what you signed up for to be gay in the first place. That and fabness. <laughs> that fabness that you felt and tasted through film, through media, and then this crisis happened. And I think all of the parties has a nice wide generation of age that come, that yeah. come out to the parties. And the older generations, the people that survived that crisis, you can see them shine when they see these spaces are coming back again. In our case with Honcho, Pittsburgh was a really, at least as as a gay man, a pretty sexually repressed city, I felt. And even with our first honcho, which was supposed to be at a big warehouse that was raided and shut down, I had the bathhouse as a backup space reserved just for some weird reason in case something went wrong. This was 2012. And the warehouse party was supposed to be huge when we shut when it was shut down and we announced that we were in mid part like as the party was starting, we were moving it back to the bathhouse. There was like a huge uproar, all like so many angry, nasty emails and posts like, I'm never stepping foot in the bathhouse. That's disgusting. And I mean, the bathhouse wasn't really doing well at that, you know, back then. And Interesting. Yeah, it's so it's been like it kind of made us realize that we needed that sexually liberated atmosphere and I think it really woke Pittsburgh up a lot in that regard and I think that was a big hangover of the, of the AIDS era. I mean that's fascinating to hear that there was a negative response to oh, going yeah. to the bathhouse <laughs> because now it's like you know one of the things that people get most excited yeah, about. Exactly. It was um, called the honcho versi. Someone <laughs> did that. How did medical breakthroughs like PrEP and Truvada affect this sort of return to the old glory days that you guys are talking about? To be perfectly honest, before PrEP and Truvada dropped, the sexual liberation had already hit. Mm. And I think it has to do with the fear and the stigma with time disappearing a little bit. And pre-PrEP and pre-Truvada, You know, it was a very common knowledge as a young queer person that you can live with this disease. That sort of was the beginning of this liberation. Then once, of course, once PrEP starts coming into the picture, and it's definitely a very visible drug, but yeah, it's added to the liberation quite a bit. The fear is gone, I think, for the most part. I think it bridged between generations, too. Like it pulled, it it drew a bridge between a lot of HIV positive people and people that maybe th- had that held the stigma really tight. I think it's like pulled it into one big family. That's what I've Should noticed. Should we be scared though? Because I was at a sex party sort of uh, last weekend, and in the dark rooms, nobody was using condoms. That's a very real. That's a very real mm-hmm. state we're at, we're in. Yeah. Um, 
I, I have to say that I've noticed personally that trend was before prep and before Travada. There was sort of a, a condomless movement that happened. I'm not sure where that happened. But I, I don't think the fear lies there. There's a larger epidemic now that the queer community faces, and that's meth. Mm-hmm. And I think in there is sort of where we really need to focus attention and we really need to, like, not be scared to talk about it and bring bring that up in, you know, the right capacity. Because so I think that is, you know, what's going to lead to the fear that we have. That's what's going to lead to problems mm-hmm. is more so into this drug. Mm. You know, speaking of drugs and crazy wild sex and stuff like that. How do you respond to people who might feel intimidated by that sort of environment? Um, I was looking on RA the other day and there was a commenter who said something like, you know, I'm sure that men's room parties are amazing, but I'm too scared to go to a party that requires me to take my shirt off or my pants off in order to enter. Well, believe it or not, I'd be scared to come to my own party. <laughs> um, like I don't know if I have what it takes to walk to cross the threshold. But I will say this: I've seen an entire city go through the motions of letting go of their fears, and it's not so much that men's room or that honcho is a sex party. The music is always first and foremost. Yeah, right. And once you sort of set that up. It's just a party. Now, there's a freedom to engage sexually that is there and present, and I'm thankful for that freedom. I mean, I've been to both Hancho, Men's Room, and there's so many people that just go and liberate themselves by just dancing shirtless. It's not so much about an act or sex that you have to engage in. I mean, voyeurism is a huge part of that also. Mm. There's so many aspects. Yeah, I don't. I <laughs> I don't want to ruin my rep, but I've never had sex at men's room, um, and I'm still a little scared of men's room. <laughs> you have to push through the fears. And men's room has a room called Fem Room, right? That's a branch off party of men's room. So when men's room first started, that movement came out of this. It's actually a porno reference that takes place in a restroom, the men's room, the party has become a battleground. And I really feel like sex and partying and dancing, that's the moment to really confront issues of racism, misogyny. That's actually where you confront it. And, I mean, we've definitely, Men's Room has strived, especially within the last three years, to really put the visibility on all aspects of queer life. So you come to Men's Room now and Men's room is filled with everybody. It's men, women, trans men, trans women. And it's not so much, I mean, it's definitely sexual. And people are getting it. I love them for it. But I see these spaces as the battleground. This is where you can actually address the issues because they're right in front of you. There is some criticism, though, that the gay scene is still dominated by white cis men. How do we become more inclusive towards trans, queer, women, femme, gender non-binary people who might feel like they're sometimes left out of the conversation, especially for parties that are very strict about, you know, men only? I know that those aren't very common, but they do happen. There's like a, you know, there's a camp out, there's a laboratory at Bergheim's, parties like that. 
first off, this for the third camp out, the Honcho camp out, we've always wanted it to be inclusive. It was just a matter of getting the right venue. Our original goal was actually to get that perfect first venue to break their rules and try to make it a learning experience for them. They're not on our timeline, so this year we were actually moving it and it will be inclusive. So that's a big thing for us, and it's always been our original vision for that. I would say as far as what we can do, I mean, it's just support these people. There are amazing artists out there, and there's a lot more of these crews coming around that are made up of trans women, trans men, uh, female crews. You know, I think that while our crews happen to be male-oriented, male-dominated crews, I think we all do a pretty good job of trying to build these people up and support them. And I hope that, I think that you're going to see in this, in, as the next waves come along, that like that changes pretty drastically because I think there's a lot of progress being made there. So you're saying the next camp out women yeah. will be yep. invited. Tickets go on sale next week. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking to that. Neil Exchange just added a fourth member very recently. We just added Morgan Tepper because we didn't want to fall into that rut of only having guys on the group or, you know, whatever else. Is that um, DJ Lisa Frank? DJ Lisa Frank, yes, correct. Ooh, yeah, right, I yes. saw her picture. <laughs> awesome. There's a woman in this group. Uh, yeah, so we just added her as a fourth member. Um, but that wasn't... We've been working with her for years. We've been throwing pride parties in the past. We've worked with her to throw parties with Rome. We've worked with her personally to throw our own parties. So we've been working with her for years. And we finally were able to just sit down and say, hey, why don't we just come together as one crew and make this one click? But at our parties, I personally try to go around and just say hello to everybody. If I see somebody that's kind of alone and they're just they look shy i'm a shy person myself so i know how that feeling is and i just try to say what's up to them and make them feel welcome and i've had people from when we were throwing our parties every sunday and they they just kept coming back and they said the reason they kept coming back was because somebody said hello to them Hmm. so i think sometimes just to include somebody it just it's that easy it's just a greeting Hmm, yeah, I almost feel like, you know, there's this secret history of like really iconic lesbian DJs who've been in the scene forever mm, and absolutely. do not get absolutely. enough shine. True. Yeah, true. Absolutely. 100%. Absolute icons. <laughs> Is this the part where we all sniff a popper and then we like, <laughs> talk about popper? Which I guess leads to my next question Why do gay men love popper so much? Is it gay men or is it everyone? I, feel, <laughs> I really I feel think like, it is more of a gay well, thing, everyone though. Re- yeah, for sure. Sh- I mean, the history is there, right? Yeah. We've been cleaning VCRs for... A <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's a cheap thrill. And I think people live for a cheap thrill that doesn't involve too much investment. I mean, yeah, you're going to burn a couple yeah. brain cells, but um, it's not going to last that long. It feels incredible. Yeah. You know, it also becomes this very weird social thing where then it, <laughs> you see this group that's passing around this old bottle of poppers. <laughs> you got to get that artisanal poppers, man. The handmade poppers. Um, Leo Herrera <laughs> is a popper king. I don't know what this blend is, but he does these blends and I've never been popped quite like that. <laughs> when he gets you with the rag. Oh, the old school way of like soaking a rag and then like kind of like oh wow yeah, yeah. watch out <laughs> i mean if you want to find the thing is if you want to find the best poppers though you go to the like the cutest dancing girl in the corner and she always has the best ones <laughs> <laughs> always in every city right 
Mm-hmm. Earlier, you were talking, Ace, about sort of the meth problem going on right now. I also think that G could be um, touched upon a little bit as not necessarily like a huge problem with like a capital P, but, you know, it is a dangerous drug and you do see people G'd out, getting carried out of clubs sometimes. So, I mean, do you think that, you know, that that drugs are the, do you guys agree that drugs are you know, posing a risk to this otherwise really thriving gay scene that's coming up in the last few years? Definitely. I mean, nobody really wants to talk about it, right? But we see articles coming out more and more, and this is a major city problem. And this is a problem with your working class, nine to five kind of weekend person who's getting a little bit lost in the sauce. I really feel like actually just talking about it is the beginning of it not calling things by their cute club names, no more like Tina, no more parties with a capital T. It's time to start calling it meth to each other. Mm. So when someone is speaking that language to you, I think the battle sort of begins in there where you're not scared to talk about the reality of what actually is going on. And there is definitely an epidemic and people are fighting for their lives at this very moment, you know. I mean, I think it's it's just humans are going to find that there's always going to be something. Like there's always, humans are always going to look for an escape. It's just trying to take care of people and get ahead of it and try to protect each other a little bit. Like Ace said, talking about it. I think nobody's talking about meth. It feels like, it feels like there's, a, there's a lot of people out there doing it and no one talks about it. We have to check on each other. Yeah. True. You have to call your friend. That You see your friend is maybe dealing with it. You have to call them. You can't whisper to your other friend, what's going on with this thing? Is she partying? Is she? Yeah. You have to go talk to your friend. Mm-hmm. You care about them. Or like you said, that person in the club that is by themselves, maybe you just notice someone that is dealing with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the only yeah. way that this is going to change. Yeah. Don't call them out either. Like, it's yeah. not a call out thing. It's a talk to them thing it's a personal hey how are you are you okay Mm. is it you know yeah if i was ever deep in a drug i would hope that one of my good judies would grab me Mm. yeah and say hey let's talk what's going on ask me what's going on you know Earlier, mm-hmm. you said that music is the foremost reason why everyone should be at these parties. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what people hear when they come to your parties? What what sounds should I expect? TNX loves to run the gambit of everything from classic gay disco to techno to breaks and everything in between. As long as it sounds like it comes from the heart and as long as there's some soul to it, we'll probably rock it. You know? And then we'll play stuff that our friends give us be it straight or queer, local crews are putting out stuff. You know, people are putting out records now, and if we like it, we'll probably play it. Uh, But that's our main thing, is we make sure that it it sounds like it comes from the heart and it has some feeling behind it. I agree. You know, Chicago's big thing that ended up being the world's big thing is, like, what is house music back in the day? Like, how do you define house? And there's so many ways and so many people. But at the end of the day, if Frankie Knuckles would drop the B-52s in the middle of his set, (laughs) he was still playing house music. So... Men's room, we definitely want to feel limitless and fearless in how we play. And we all, there's four residents, uh, Harry, Jacob, uh, Mr. Wallace, and myself. And we definitely have our own unique styles. 
but there's a freedom there and we never talk about a specific sound for the night you know i think it's about trusting how to drive a, a boat at the end of the day yeah. you know yep and riding waves i'd uh, echo what these guys said i do think honcho definitely drives more into techno than some of the other crews do a little bit uh, it's just in the roots of pittsburgh it's kind of what we've been brought up on and that the legends like sean rudiman who don't get enough shine that have been pushing us that direction since we were in our late teens or early 20s and it's it's hard to get away from that we've kind of pulled in in our own way so that's important to us and it seems like music in these scenes is very important to people as compared to let's say in the 90s when you or even if you go to like a mainstream gay bar and you hear like you know one more madonna remix (laughs) (laughs) um whereas you know if i come to your parties i can expect to hear some really good whatever it is house techno disco Mm -hmm. definitely seems like one thing that unifies all these parties We, we try to play as little, uh, I call it McDonald's music, <laughs> just because it's, you know, it's quick, it's cheap, uh, it's going to make you shit in like 10 <laughs> minutes, like it's like, it's, it's bad for you. Uh, <laughs> so we try to avoid as much, you know, much of that as possible. Unfortunately, a lot of gay clubs and bars focus solely on that because it's cheap and it might bring in some cheap dollars real quick, but it has no lasting effect at all. And you see it reflecting in, in the people that go to the, those bars. They just kind of are there. They don't know what's going on. They're not paying attention to anything. They don't really come for the music. So we try to make sure that if you're at a party that you're going to have some patience. You're going to have to listen to an eight-minute record, and you're going to have to enjoy it because there's something in it that's uh, a little bit deeper than, you know, uh, the mainstream music that's getting remixed to 128. <laughs> right. You know? Patience. That's, yeah, there's going to be a payoff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys all for serving me such a quality meal today. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll get into the second part of this discussion. Welcome to part two. I'm here with the guys from Wrecked, the Carry Nation, and Honey Sound System. And we're going to be talking about the evolution of gay nightlife, circuit parties, and the musical connections between their scenes. So, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Hey, I'm Nita Aviance. I'm from the Carry Nation, based here in New York City. I'm Ryan Smith. I'm one half of Wrecked with Ron Lykel, and I'm here in New York City, from New York City. This is Jackie House. I'm from Honey Sound System out of San Francisco. Thank you guys all for coming, and um, I I guess I should just mention that we're in a packed house right now because part one decided to stay, so we have a bit of a peanut gallery. They want to see us fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Which we won't. Let's start by talking about how your parties got started. Um, When you, you know, decided to start throwing parties, what were you hoping to bring to the table that was new or otherwise lacking in the scene at the time? 
Honey Sound System actually started as two people, and it started actually out of a lack of being able to throw a party. It was me and someone I'd met, Ken, while I was DJing at a cafe that I was literally DJing behind the cake case. It was super glamorous. But I was in the Castro District of San Francisco, which at the time had a very vibrant nightclub scene. It was fairly diverse, and there was a lot of different clubs, but the music was not quite diverse. And San Francisco had a super rich history for dance music. And although there were parties that were um, playing dance music and there was a lot of independent DJs, this whole idea of being able to do something that was a little bit more global or connected to a newer dance music system or producers kind of popped up. And that's why we moved in that direction to try to bring something new. When did you, what year was this? I think it was, we say it's 2006. (laughs) But 2006, 2008, we're actually, we're definitely celebrating our 10-year anniversary this year. We might have lost a year at some point, so we just skipped a year. Who hasn't in this business? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're celebrating 10 years as like a fully formed crew. That's great. Congrats. What would you say is the difference between the older scene and the newer scene that you're trying to connect to? I think at the time was the internet. I think that was really what was new. MySpace, being able to be connected to queers or gay guys or just musical lovers through message boards maybe was like the 90s vibe, late 90s vibe, early 2000s. But then social media, especially MySpace, was bringing this new way of being able to connect as an individual artist or as a promoter. Yeah, you'd have access to talk to anyone from like Tel Aviv to London to Berlin, wherever it may be, and also just sharing ideas like you put out a mix and then people hit you up and they're like oh I want to do something similar in my city or something like that so it you know the conversation just evolved I would say or like back then Kingdom would just post his mix to your wall with an animated (laughs) gif and that's how you would listen to it yeah I think that uh, for a lot of us, it was about starting to bring this new music and this new sound that was coming, uh, emerging globally, really, into the forefront for our dance floors. Will and I formed the Carrie Nation in 2012 after we started producing together and we just started throwing parties together. We'd been working with each other for years in New York, but Carrie Nation just sort of was our opportunity to really push the sound further. It comes down to the music, uh, ultimately, for us. And then finding the space that you can do it in yourself. I mean, it was all DIY at the beginning, so you needed to create your own space in order to play the music that you wanted. And I think for, as far as the difference and the time change from gay clubs, a lot of gay clubs only wanted us to play pop music and pop remixes, which, you know, you'd work and you'd get your gigs uh, to pay your rent, but it's not necessarily what everybody wanted to be doing. So I think that's what a big impetus was to change it. Nita and Will had been like hustling around town for quite some time before that, I think, and always, like I know I went out to see both Nita and Will at various venues, like I don't know, Mr. Black and, uh, oh God. Opaline. Opaline, blackouts, I don't know. Manda. I mean, it's blackouts, but, um, you know, I always used to go see them, and they were always just, like, playing good dance music rather than pop, which was so prevalent in the East Village. I and think, had style that as yeah. DJs. That was also a thing, was the idea of, like, style as a DJ was kind of not at the forefront as much as just being able to play a lot of gigs or be able to play videos because a video bar needs you or to be able to play long sets because a long set needs you. 
and uh, Will and Nita and that crew, and New York especially, never lost its like roots to style as a DJ. Other places maybe weren't like championing the idea of a DJ being an artist. Mm. And I, I think, in or at New least York, at that time, it kind of like lost its way a little bit. Yeah, I think in New York too, it like ebbs and flows. Like at certain points in that time, there wasn't a place to go and hear good dance music. You know, you could always hear electro, you could always hear pop, but sometimes they would just disappear, and then all of a sudden they'd be back again. But I think the move to, like, Brooklyn really changed that in a way. I know our first party was, like, eight years ago in the hose in the upstairs on uh, Avenue C. And that was kind of like our, our one of our early Manhattan parties. And then we found this really raucous underground venue, the National Underground, that kind of, like, let us do what we want. So, yeah, just finding the space to do it and just pushing your own identity, I think, in the early years was really important. I think it also is important to say that AIDS and the HIV crisis of the 80s and then the 90s being a very difficult time for people either finding their way with medication or finally having some reprise from the political side of it. There were generations that weren't really in it the same way that we were able to, at least this scene, kind of pull away from that being the thing that sucked the fun out of the party. I would go as far as to say that this scene was kind of right there when it was time for some of those people who were even in the 80s AIDS crisis to want to go out again and talk about the good parts of that club time with the kids Mm. like us. But when you say that, you know, there was a sort of dearth of good music and good parties for many years in the 90s or early 2000s, are you talking about underground specifically? Because I want to talk a little bit about circuit parties, which, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but my definition of a circuit party is basically a huge gay party that's very commercial, usually lasts for many hours, guys wearing harnesses or shirtless, and probably a lot of sex and drugs. So how did your parties relate to circuit parties? Were they created in opposition to that? Or did you see it as a sort of continuation, but slight shift away from that? Like, what is your relationship to mainstream, in quotes, gay culture? Well, I think the idea of the circuit party started in the Saint and various other discos around and like them just throwing parties and people traveling to it. So in a way, there is some continuity. I think a lot of us started what we do as a response to circuit parties because a lot of times on a circuit party flyer you see like a shave smooth white dude probably more often than not, you know, with a perfect body and we wanted to create an environment that was a little more open-minded. If you're a bear, that's cool. If you're this, that's cool, but we're all united under music. I also think like the meth crisis within the circuit scene made it a pretty dismal, both musically and as a scene, in my opinion. So we kind of were a reaction to like the meth crisis in gay clubs and created these meth-free Probably not meth-free completely. No, not meth-free completely. But I think the idea was that meth wasn't necessarily what was driving our scenes. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. for me, my story with that is that I was actually like very inspired to rebel against circuit parties when we were starting Honey. I was young. I was dumb. I was full of cum. (laughs) I remember there was one night where I was was so proud of myself because I was going to go to this party underage. And I, down the street from me, a friend of mine was just coming home where I was living. And I was like, hey, look at this. And I 
pulled up my shirt and I had written in magic marker, please rape me <laughs> on my chest. I said I was young and I was young. <laughs> and I went to the biggest circuit party in San Francisco and I dressed up. My friend snuck me in because he was working for the guy at the time. And I got up on the do- I got up on the go-go box and and took off my shirt and I go-go danced there with this this written on oh my on my God. chest for as long as I could before security will pull me out. <laughs> and at the time, this this guy pointed up at me who was there, this like beautiful Latin guy who had this like lotus flower tattooed on his chest and he loved what I was doing and got up there and started freaking me. Like freaking me hard. And I was like, I don't know if I'm okay with this, but this is super fun. And the end, this guy ended up being not only one of the uh, biggest fans of Honey, but he's an amazing conceptual artist. And it was like this poetic moment later on for me to realize that like, I thought I knew everything in that moment, but there are these people in these spaces that not only enjoy circuit parties and and have a greater understanding of them, but are also, we're looking for something else as well. Mm. And so it's been a lifetime of learning how to not be a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really what it comes down to. I mean, we've all kind of grown up in all of this, and we were all children. I mean, when I first came to New York, it was about Junior Vasquez and Danny Sinaglia and going to these huge clubs with thousands of people every weekend, and you have everything there. You have a little, you know, it's a lot of muscle queens, but you also have a whole bunch of drag queens and, and ballroom queens and all of these different groups, and that was really the most important thing to, like, draw into. I think the circuit kind of went in a way that separated itself from the diversity and I think that was really important for all of us to bring it back to the music and to everybody coming together on the dance floor. Yeah, and I think that's something that defines all of us is we're pretty much all, you know, music first and with that comes a variety of people and you don't need to fit a mold of the kind of marketed to gay guy to really feel like you fit in. But don't you think that circuit parties themselves are changing? Like this year, Servito played at the Black Party. Um, I wonder how that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you work. He must have submitted a mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, gosh, I don't even know. I think that I think, but I think that's how it always comes back around. Carrie Nation. We started. We were working in completely illegal DIY venues. Now we have residencies and clubs, and this goes after Will and I had our own full careers beforehand doing the same thing and going through that same cycle of, you know, you bust your ass under the table and then you work your way up into the mainstream, quote unquote, whatever that may be. But, you know, these are bigger events with bigger budgets and need bigger names to draw it in. It's just how it goes. It's business. Yeah, but we also, you know, have like a pretty, I would say, spread out network of people that are kind of doing similar things. And I think the Trade Show USA event kind of speaks to that. The larger network that we have going on and also just like pushing for those people to get them on to slots like, you know, the Black Party or something like that. It moves music forward moves your friends forward. I think the idea that maybe if we at all had an effect in such a giant industry as the circuit party scene is, I mean, at a certain point there was like licensed music and it was what was getting into the like Grammy nominations were like circuit remixes. Yeah. Like that was it. EDM basically yeah. sounds like circuit music in my opinion. Well, yeah, and there's there's some of that. But the idea that maybe we had some effect on the butching, the bu- butching, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not what I meant. Um, 
um, <laughs> on the on the evolution of maybe that sound right now. But I think what's better said is the idea that we were all open, and some of those promoters, the ones that got through the hardest parts of being a circuit promoter, AIDS and meth, if they're on the other side because they were really resilient and like could continue to evolve, they actually were open and minded enough to talk to us and tell us about their stories, and we were open minded enough to be like, okay, this isn't all bad. Like, actually, if you're willing to book some music from our scene, we're gonna help you out. And in many ways, they've helped us out in certain pockets here and there, too. I feel like we keep coming back, especially with part one as well, to this idea of there really being a network of a gay underground scene right now. How do you think that this scene has evolved specifically in the last two or three years? (laughs) We all get more gigs now. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's it's a lot more... (laughs) I think it's a lot more extensive than it was originally, you know, it, it started out with just like a few crews and now it's like there's parties in training in Cleveland, just parties happening, you know, <laughs> all, all, all around the USA that are, are just popping up in, in very random areas like our friend Mark Luke and Buffon Buffon are throwing parties in New Orleans. Vicky Powell is doing an awesome job in Atlanta. There's way too many to name, but they're all doing awesome work in their respective cities. So, you know, I think the wave has finally hit and it's, it's happening everywhere in places you'd least expect in, in some capacities too. I think as with any underground scene, it's really about a network of friends that have been working together towards the same goal for a really long time. And as it grows, the more people you meet and the more people you find that have the similar tastes in what you're trying to do. So, I mean, the first time I played Honey Sound System was maybe the first year. And you guys... the first year of the week. Yeah. yeah. You can remember. (laughs) (laughs) And they, you know, and they came out to New York. Those were the last years, though. Oh, yeah. The last... That was was the last year. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless, like, you know, we've we've all been working together for the better part of the past 10 years. Um, So, I think right now, it's kind of amazing that we're all still in it together. Yeah, and I I think, you know, that's something that's really interesting going back to, like, the circuit scene in a way is the circuit scene is so cutthroat and they're, like, all throwing parties against each other and, like, you know, I think a lot of it gets a bit toxic. Well, I I don't know. Because they all took their own seasons. Like, the thing about the black party and the white party and the blue party is that they took a date and then they separated themselves so that, okay, you could go here, you could go there. So there was some of that, too. Well, it's like, you know, where are you going to go? Master Beat? Or are you going to go to Matinee? <laughs> all, all on Pride Weekend, you know? Oh my god, I don't know. I think it got dark. <laughs> Can you turn the light up again? <laughs> I I would like to say, though, that uh, two things happened that weren't necessarily gay or queer specific. EasyJet and cheap flights to Europe. That's one big one. The Internet we already talked about. But then also this idea that over the last 10 years, maybe the first couple years, felt really free because there wasn't a lot of dance music industry that was for the underground. Especially, for example, we are in the Thump offices right now. They did not exist then. And so there's a lot of infrastructure that started coming out for people to be able to be empowered to get involved but also infrastructure for them to be way more informed than they ever could. The whole local rave scene, like you got in your car and you went to the like three cities that were nearby or the fields that had warehouses that were within five hours of driving. That was that network. And now we're talking about something that's more global and easily accessible, cheap, SoundCloud, all that stuff helped build this more and more and more. 
And I think that's something really unique and interesting about the U.S. scene, too, is a lot of people are working together, gay or straight, throwing events together, destination events, so people are traveling, you know, so I think... Yeah, bring all the those hard tourist work, dollars. <laughs> no, I just think, you know, it's just creating a scene and a vibe and definitely, uh, you know, in, in, an American it, it influence. Is, it is the ability to travel. It's travel is made easier. I mean, people forget America is huge. Like, it is yeah, really it is a lot to get around. So when it comes down to it, it's like friends helping friends. It's a lot of couches and a lot of family dinners, but that's really what ties everybody together and strengthens the whole bond of the situation. As the scene has grown and become accessible and gotten more mainstream attention, maybe gotten more attention from people who are not necessarily gay, I feel like there are some really funny moments that happen. Like, for example, earlier you were talking about this amazing story. Can you actually just tell it? Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) I got a call while we were waiting for part one while we were in the lobby. And it was the set designer that's working on the event tomorrow. And she has worked with Wes Anderson. And obviously she's working in show business. So she's not like completely out in the weeds about some of the subject matter for the party. But it was the first call I've gotten from her. And I'm really excited about what she's doing. But I don't know a lot and I'm like hey is everything okay party's tomorrow and she's like yeah I'm calling actually because um, we're drilling glory holes right now and I need to know what an average height length would be I looked online and I couldn't really find one. And I was Quora. like, Quora.com didn't yeah. have the answer. I was like, she's like, there's she a mentioned YouTube tutorial on that. Oh, yeah, there's a YouTube tutorial. And then I was like, well, I mean, you're kind of average height. She's like, I'm lower than average height. I was like, okay, well, just go from your waist and then just a little bit higher from there. <laughs> We definitely sent her a lot of photos of glory holes, well, thanks to Chris Cruz and his yeah. obsession. Uh, so she had visual examples, but. So I feel like that's a perfect example of how someone who's not necessarily in like the gay scene is coming and like trying to enter it. Do you guys ever worry though that like, you know, that there are so many with, with like gay marriage and all of these other factors that gay nightlife will lose some of its edge? Oh, come, there's always going to be some queer children who want to get high. Yeah. Always. <laughs> And, like, they want to go out and they want to party and they're coming out and they're discovering themselves and they need to find their community and that's the whole thing. And, and beware of the gay daddies when they leave their kids at home, <laughs> let me tell you that. Yeah. Right? No, I do think that, like, this whole idea of the edge is interesting, but, I mean, the world evolves and especially cities evolve in these very similar rates. Like, they may be very far away from each other, but if there's anything I've noticed these days, you get on a plane, you go to a different city, and everyone's complaining about the same thing. (laughs) And so I think the evolution of gay is happening globally in a a direction that maybe isn't, like, necessarily as edgy a topic. That's why some other topics of queerness have come to the forefront. Such as? Uh, non-binary and uh, trans and like there's a myriad of issues Um, marginalized queer communities Mm -hmm. that are like behind a you know fascist political regime and finally getting some attention because there needs to be more edgy things to talk about but also that there might be more exposure because people are reaching out because they have uh, time or they have stability to do so 
how would you say that your parties are connected musically? And do you think it's important to play sort of like, you know, classic gay anthems or music by queer artists in order to educate the children that are coming to your party and so-called reclaim the dance floor from, you know, I guess <laughs> the straight people that have been dominating it for the last few years? Well, I think it's like, uh, I don't know, there's just so much information out there at this point in time. So in a sense, I think it's difficult to have an edge in this day and age when everything you do is kind of everywhere, you know, and anything everyone else says is everywhere. But I think because of that, we've been able to share a lot of information. So I think there are a lot of like tracks that go through that definitely probably a lot of us rinse just because they have a certain edge in sound. I don't necessarily play some anthems, but our crew is from New York, so we we go. <laughs> Did it get dark in here? <laughs> we turned the lights off. Oh my god! No, no. I think we um, definitely like harken back a bit of our sound to you know old school New York, and and definitely tell the the heritage. You know, we we don't play a lot of it, but you know, there's kind of like a, a whole a whole spectrum of of years. Well, I think Nita being here right now, and I had Nita on my radio show recently, and we talked about anthems, and <laughs> we talked about this is. This this Bitch is Alive, which is the like Carrie Nation anthem that came out at a time when I think all of us were either dabbling in production or some people were more production focused and were trying to find DJs to like play their stuff. And Carrie Nation came out th- with this song that very much within our network, you know, not because iTunes pushed it, not because it had like a big, well, I mean, not that I know of, but <laughs> I'm just saying it's felt very organic and through our network that that track disseminated to these parties that all had maybe two. 200, 400 people at a time. Those people heard an iconic song, and then we were championing it because it was by people who we really wanted to champion. And then the idea that you could own the song. I mean, some songs are owned because you reclaim them, and then some are owned because they were made for you. I think that because we're DJs and consummate collectors of music, we've come from a place where we seek out so much knowledge from our elders about all of this music. And one of the big questions right now, and I was talking to Ali Escobar about this, is is it possible to create another hit, another song that everybody across a scene or the world even knows about? And I said, you know, yeah, that's possible to happen through the internet, I think, but it's also important for people to be having this experience on the dance floor to this music, and that's really what creates an anthem, something that lasts for such a long time. And I think that one of the big parts of this network is that it is all about a lot of people creating new music and for a space that already exists that's been created by ourselves. So not so much for us, by us, but pretty much. Like, you want to play the hot new music that your friends are making because you're all in love with each other and you're all turning it out. Mm. Or there's something empowering about the song. Because as a DJ, there are these moments when you feel like, wow, these are other people's tracks, but my energy and my focus right now has something to do with the energy that this music has, even though it was already produced by someone else and came in the can. But something about what you are doing infecting the way it's mixed or even just the the excitement that you have while you're up there and the focus and the timing, that all works in the same way when someone within your scene makes a song and hands it to you and it's already filled with all that energy. 
I really love this 2015 generator series that you guys did. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like what was the concept and why did you decide to do it? Yeah, for sure. Maria Black Madonna was running Smart Bars programming at the time and she was naming the residents for that year. And uh, she asked Honey Sound System to be a resident for the year. And in many ways, we had just thrown this event in Chicago that was a huge success. And it was for Patrick Halley's second porn soundtrack that we had put out on our label. And uh, And you guys were very influential in sort of, you know, bringing attention back to this really important queer artist who, in a way, had been forgotten by many people. Yeah, he was a background producer, but had a cult following. And in the same way, there was this venue called the Bijou in Chicago that is no longer open, which is super sad, but it was the longest running adult theater and sex club in America, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. And it was multiple floors and men's room and many Chicago queer parties had done stuff there, but we really wanted to do this record release slash party there. And it was a moment where we realized that Chicago is just such a breeding ground for bigger ideas and people are interested in conceptual stuff within the dance floor context. So we came up with an idea of like, all right, if we're going to be doing a residency at Smart Bar, then maybe we can do something that involves not only the time and the place, but some of these conceptual ideas of dance music and it's like birthplace of house. Right. And my understanding, though, was that you specifically wanted to highlight artists that have contributed to queer nightlife throughout history. And it's a multi-part series. And each episode is like written, produced, directed by a queer artist. Yeah. I mean, the idea, the reason why it's called Generators, and this is something that I noticed that was actually a part of all of our scenes, was, and something we've touched on already in this episode, is this idea that there are multiple generations of people who are excited about the dance floor. And each one loses their youth at some point or is just finding it. But I started noticing there was kind of a divide. The internet especially, gay bars like going away every week, you know, a new one's closing or an old one's closing. And this project for me was how can I find ways to connect some of the generations? So each episode was a generation but was forced to work with another generation. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but the idea was at at the very least I could connect six different people from different places at different ages who all had something similar to talk about, which was dance music, dance floors, and gay nightlife. How do you guys feel about this criticism that I hear sometimes that house and disco and techno is too conservative, that there's not that much innovation going on, that it's too historically looking, and that the more interesting queer sounds are coming from like the super experimental archaeolotic total freedom kind of scene. Oh God, if we're too old already, then like what's the hope for anybody? I don't even we know. Are. No, listen, I mean like it's a genre that's like 40 years old. Are we kidding? Like there's still so much to be discussed. Like people are, we're only in second generations of people working within the field. Going to the loft constantly with David Mancuso, who is basically credited with starting all of this, you know, it's one degree of separation. So there's still there's still a lot more to go. <laughs> like I think some of the best music is being produced right now because so many kids have access to so many different genres, YouTube. They can hear a wide spectrum of things where Nita said, you know, a lot of the kids needed to talk to elders to figure out 
what the what the hot tracks were at the time, the kids can go to your YouTube channel and sc- scroll down it. So the influence, uh, there's so much influence in a lot of these new tracks where you could hear something that has like electro and disco and all these different aspects combined to make something really cool and unique. But it's it's a sound that's definitely withstood the test of time. So I think there is a lot more to come. I mean, I think specifically house and techno and those genres are the the tempos are close to the heartbeat. I mean, there might be like five up or five below, but this idea that like there is a dance music uh, tempo that actually fits maybe what your body wants to be at at a certain time makes it uh, it makes a good case for why it not only has lasted this long, but is also continually finding new ways to speak. And all of these children who are making the crazy stuff that even I don't know how to listen to always make a house track or or then they're like i made a whole house record you know like they always find their way to house somehow i'm or that tempo range totally and you know speaking of physicality okay my last question why do gay men love poppers so much (laughs) finally the good stuff Um, Why do you love poppers um, yeah, so much? I've actually, I've actually that straight women have outpoppered me more times than not, <laughs> and that's just facts. You know? So yeah, why don't you tell us how the, you feel? All my them. favorite poppers have come from you, though, Nita. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, you know. Pass them around, huh? <laughs> yeah, Today it gets dark in here. <laughs> the truth will out. Um, I don't know. I'm not working for any brand, so I'm not going to do any promotions right now. (laughs) Uh, I definitely want to say that I've never done those aerosol ones before, and maybe I'll change that this weekend now that we're talking about it. Has what yeah, aerosol, aerosol ones? Somebody brought those to me at Battle. Him. What's it called? Like forced exposure or something <laughs> like that? I don't Maximum. do poppers, mom. <laughs> I also would like to say that I've never done one of those dick pills, but I also I just heard that one of I heard one of the dick pills. I'm I sorry, I've never like done one of the dick pills. I heard, I know. I found a I found a fake Viagra. Have you ever done a dick pill? I found a fake Viagra. Answer the in, question. <laughs> I will get to admitting that I've taken a fake Viagra and it gave me heart palpitations. I mean, everything gives you heart palpitations. (laughs) Have you taken a dick pill? Have you taken a dick pill? I would, just to see what it does. We can do it together. Okay, let's put one. (laughs) Where do you get the best poppers? The internet. (laughs) <laughs> That's where you get the best drugs these days. <laughs> Bitcoin. Uh, no, leather bars. Leather clubs. Yeah. Or leather like or like leather shops. Well, there's, there's actually these um, small small batch locally sourced oh organic poppers that are starting to pop up. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Anywhere that has like a white subway tile and like a wooden countertop, that's where you get the best poppers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good to know. <laughs> Well, on that note, guys, thank you for a delightful session. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Thump Podcast, a production of Vice Media and Thump. We wanted to shout out Tim Barnes, who engineers and edits the show. You can find him on Twitter at TimBarnes451. We'd also like to shout out Lorna Dune, who made the music for this podcast. And a very big thanks to all of our guests today, Ace from Men's Room, Aaron Clark from Honcho, Bill Barenhawk from The Needle Exchange, Ryan Smith from Wrecked, Nita Aviance from The Carry Nation, and Jacob Sperber from Honey Sound System. You can find more information on them and this podcast on thump.feist.com.
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.